Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Have you guys had a good week? You guys have tomorrow off. Well, maybe, what what was that? Well, that's funny with uh, uh, Landon saying that, because he should know that you should whistle while you work, which is the title of the message, Whistle While You Work, Finding Joy, Meaning, and Fulfillment in Our Work. Are you a Garfield? That's my question. Are you a Garfield? Anyone here want to raise their hand and admit that you are a Garfield? All right, some of you know exactly where I'm going. Many of you might be familiar with this uh, fictional cartoon character written and drawn as a lazy, fat, and cynical orange cat. So let me ask again, are any of you a Garfield? He is noted for his love of of lasagna and coffee and sleeping, but also he is well known for his hatred of fellow cat Nermal, who would love Nermal, raisins, exercise, and especially his hatred of Mondays. Are there any Garfields here this morning? Maybe just a few, just a subtype. It depends one week what way your week is off. In one article, Jim Davis, the creator and author of the comic, shares the reasons that Garfield hates money. If, if Jake, if you can go to these slides here, you might think like this. I got my Monday face on. Any of you face Monday that way? Or maybe it's the next one. Yep, it's Monday, you're at the office, but it's all laid back. You just don't know which way's up, which way's going. And one last one. I'm a Friday person in a Monday world. That sounds like a song. Well, Jim Davis, the creator and author of this comic, shares, why, shares the reason why Garfield hates Mondays. He writes, Garfield does not have a job. He does not go to school, and every day for him is the same. Nevertheless, every Monday is a reminder that his life is the same old cycling again. And for some reason, even though his life is pretty much the same every day, on Monday specifically, awful things tend to happen to him. There are not too many things as depressing as enjoying your weekend, coming to a nice Sunday evening, only to realize that tomorrow is Monday. Maybe you are like millions of others who were excited when you realized that for many, this would be a three-day weekend filled with picnics and hikes and parades and the International Street Fair here in Orange. You're looking forward to sleeping in tomorrow and spending time with family and friends, and I encourage you to do so. If you don't have someone to do that, please let me know. We're going to do something. I'd love to have you with us. Labor Day is an annual celebration of workers and their achievements that we celebrate. And it originated during one of America's labor history's most dismal chapters. Let me share with you. George Friedman writes in the Geopolitical Future magazine of the origin of Labor Day, just so you know what you're celebrating. Labor Day became an American federal holiday back in 1894. Most other countries celebrated labor on May 1st, And that date, though, has always been a pagan celebration over the centuries. But in the late 19th century, European socialists adopted that date, May 1st, as the annual holiday devoted to labor with marches 
and riots. So they would schedule on May 1st, this is a day of riot. Industrialization brought labor problems to the United States at the same time in the 1800s. And with some nasty consequences, American workers like today wanted more money, better working conditions, and recognition. And it was very difficult at that time at the dawn and in the rise of the American industrial age. Money and better conditions were very hard to give, though, by those owners and workers. So labor suggested a holiday and a management, and Congress was enthused. A holiday not built around an armed uprising was just the thing they desired. But May 1st, again, was a reminder of everything that they wanted workers not to think about. The European riots that would happen on that. They didn't want them to join in solidarity with that thought process. So the first Monday in September was chosen, and here we are. Being the last weekend before children returned to school in those days, this created a three-day family-oriented holiday. And rather than marching under a red flag, families headed to the beach or the lake or whatever for a last summer fling outing. The vendors at these places thought it was a delightful idea as another opportunity to make money. And so Labor Day didn't become a day to plan revolutions or to riot, but it was a time to kick back, have a beer, and for the vacation industry to have one last summer blow off. Think about it. The threat was a European style revolution that was spreading like fire during that time. The solution, the American solution was a holiday. One the kids wouldn't let the workers ignore. ignore. So there was no meetings. There was nothing to go to. Those making money out of summer got a three-day weekend to peddle their wares. And the workers were recognized for being workers. And at least that beef was taken care of. And some of the Christian churches who were not happy with a pagan holiday being the main day were also appeased as later Labor Day was moved to September. Since then, as you know, Labor Day has grown into another multi-million dollar making holiday. But it's also a source of anticipation and fun for families, is it not? I'm looking forward to it. One last day before the fall season starts in earnest. And of course, it's the appearance for the approaching days of Christmas in our local stores. Where would we be without Labor Day? However, one thing has not changed as much as the average person's love-hate affair with work, with vocation, occupation, their labor. People still complain of wanting more money, better work conditions, and recognition. One article from September 14th of last year, 2017, notes that over 51% of the workforce is not engaged at their work. They find no connection with their jobs, and they do the bare minimum to get by. So there are a lot of Garfields out in the workplace. Workers complain still today of long hours and low pay, chronic stress and burnout, feeling unappreciated and replaceable, boredom and monotonous routines, and low moral with lack of commitment from not only themselves and their co-workers, but even from those above them. If you and I are honest, we struggle with our jobs. We struggle with our work. We have an ongoing love-hate relationship with the place that we spend a majority of our time and energy. We are like Garfield who hates Mondays, mainly because it begins another week of drudgery in the trenches. Oh no, I gotta work. Tomorrow is Monday. 
It's the same old rat race over and over. And though we may take some joy and find our identity in there, we still have a love-hate relationship. Rarely, rarely do you and I approach each morning, not only Mondays, but each morning as the psalmist is saying, this is the day that the Lord has made. Rejoice and be what? Glad in it. Well, you know the verse. Here's another tattoo that you can put on there. You and I need to understand that God has called us to work. Please turn your Bible to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. In his wonderful book, The Masculine Mandate, thus men went over it some time ago, Richard Philip remarks, as you're turning to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, he writes, I realize that at many times many men tolerate, dislike, or even hate their jobs. But underlying so much of this frustration with unsatisfying labor is the knowledge that deep in a man or woman's heart, I would add, that work is supposed to be meaningful and enjoyable. Do you find your work meaningful and enjoyable? If you do, thank God. Stay with me. But if you're struggling, if you have that love-hate relationship, listen what he says King Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. King Solomon, who we just studied, he's the king of Israel. He was endued with much wisdom. He sums up the feeling of futility of work and labor that Richard Phillips is writing. He's writing what you and I really think, even though we may not express this to our spouse or to our family or to anyone else, we really feel this way, I think. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2, look at verse 18. He writes, I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun. It's also on the monitor if you need it. Seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he'll be wiser or fool. Yet he will be master of all, excuse me, for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about in verse 20 and gave my heart over to despair over all the toils of the labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This is also a vanity and also a what? A great evil. Thank you. Yes. Verse 22, what is a man from all the toil and the striving of a heart with which he toils beneath the sun? What does he get for all of that in verse 23? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This is all vanity. And if that was not enough, King Solomon aptly sums up many of our own feelings when he writes in a few chapters later in chapter 6, verse 7, all the toil of man is for the mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. So Father, we come before you. I think if we're honest, many of us, when we get down to it, feel the same way. Our work is not meaningful. It is not satisfying. We have a love-hate relationship with it. Father, we, we, we sometimes uh, work in, in ways that are unhealthy, in many ways that are sinful. So Father, I pray that you help us understand what Scripture has to say about work. What does it have to say about our labor? 
a portion of our time and energy that is poured into it, uh, by far usually the largest amount of percentage of time. Lord, we understand that all that we do is to glorify you. So be with us this morning as we continue through scripture to see how we should approach our work and our labor. In your name we pray. Amen. Let me ask you this. You don't have to answer out loud. Maybe you can put this if you're taking notes. And I encourage you, we have our little papers back there that you can take notes or things like that. I always encourage you to do so. Maybe you can just put the number on there and circle it just for later when you can look through this. How would you rate your satisfaction in your job, in your work and occupation? What would you, one to 10. One being, oh, I hate it. The 10, this is the best thing. I hope I get to do this in heaven. Where would you rate yourself? A 10? A 7? A 5? Maybe you're looking at negative numbers. What's your satisfaction? And you know, before we say, well, wait a second, I'm just a, a homemaker. I'm just a stay-at-home mom. That is your work and that's your vocation as well. How about the students that are here this morning? Many of you have already started school. You may not go to work at a company, but you definitely work hard at school. Are you happy getting up in the morning, grabbing your backpack and heading out to the school? Now, that doesn't mean everyone hates their job or hates school or hates working at home. But for many, if we could do something different and provide our families, you and I would probably jump at the chance of leaving our jobs. Would we not? Or we'd be very tempted to. Well, since it's Labor Day weekend, I want to share a little bit about what Scripture has to say about our work, about our labor. How to approach our jobs, our daily grind, and all the demands that come along with it. It's important for you and I to see that rather being a curse or a drudgery or an unfortunate necessity, work, and listen here, here's what you need to understand. Here's the theme. That work is actually a gift from God in which we can glorify Him and serve our neighbors in love. In every one of your occupations, in every one of our jobs, we can glorify God and serve others in love. In other words, you and I can do the great commandment in our jobs, in our vocation, in our occupation. And I believe that if you and I could gather that, if we could let that permeate deep in our, deep in our souls, you and I would cease to be Garfields. We would see Mondays not as a drudgery, not as something that's coming in, not as just a duty and a chore, but you will whistle while you work because you'll see that you're actually doing God's work. So let's get a few facts here about work. Number one, Work was first mandated and blessed by God in the garden. Work was first mandated and blessed by God in the garden. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, you can return there very quickly if you like. Moses writes that the Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden. We all know that story. In the beginning, God created. But in 2, verse 15, we see that the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. To work it and keep it. Now, when he writes that we're to work, that means that we're to labor to make things grow. God created all things. And yes, God makes all things grow. But man was going to have to work the ground. He was going to have to till the soil. He was going to have to pick the fruit. He was going to have to cultivate that which God had given him. And his first job was a gardener of the, gar of the Garden of Eden. Take care of this. Work it. And then he also says, not only to work it, but he also says it's to keep. 
and to keep us to protect and sustain the pro- sustain, excuse me, the progress that's already achieved. So not only grow it, but protect it, keep it, keep it so it continues in good orderly progress. Richard Phillips writes that this is the this creation mandate informs us that you and I are to devote ourselves to devote ourselves to working and building to keeping and protecting everything that's placed into our charge. Adam was to bring glory to God by devoting himself to bearing God's fruit there in the garden, starting there and extending outward to all of creation. Again, be fruitful and multiply. How was he do that? By working and keeping where God had placed him. Now, Adam didn't ask for this job. He didn't put in a resume. He didn't get his job description to say, well, these are the things I would like to do. And here's where I'd like to work. God's sovereignty, providentially put him there in the garden, most beautiful place on earth. He receives the blessing and God says, oh, well, this is all yours. But guess what? You got to work and keep it, protect it, cultivate it. Again, Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 that whatever your hands finds to do it, do with all your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol, in the grave. In other words, work. Because when you die, there is nothing there for you. He also states, Phillips does, the writer, the the author of the Masculine Mandate writes that you and I must understand that work is not just about providing for our family, but it's much more. So not only was guarding and keeping just about providing, so that's why we work, to provide for our families, but it's more than that. Our mandate to work means that you and I should be devoting ourselves to building good things and accomplishing worthwhile results. You and I just don't make widgets just to make widgets so that we all can have widgets and that widgets can propagate and that everyone can have a widget. No, it's for the good, the betterment of each other in the society. Christian men and women should desire to cultivate something worthwhile for the glory of God and for the well-being of their fellow man. That's why you work and provide your family. Not for yourself, but also for the good of your family. But then you also take care of your home for the good of your neighborhood and community. And so you also use your money to provide for the welfare, not only of your own family, but those within your family, and so on and so forth. The Apostle Paul echoes the words of King Solomon when he wrote in Colossians chapter 3, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive your inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ, so you must see that God mandated work first to glorify himself. To serve our master. So our work is an opportunity actually to serve Christ, to serve God. But not only that, our garden, our work, our vocation, our calling includes not merely things, widgets, but also people. Men's calling to cultivate means that we are to be involved in the hearts of the people placed under our care. It's a sad man who provides for his family with financial goods and with food, but leads her barren in her soul and in her emotional state. Amen, men? Amen, women? We're to cultivate the heart of our children. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. 
but to cultivate their hearts. A man's fingers should be, I like what he writes here. This is Richard Phillips. He writes, and, and think of this, think of this, put this in your mind, do a word picture. A man's fingers should be accustomed to working in the soil of the human heart. The hearts of those he serves and loves that he might accomplish some of the most invaluable and important work of his life. Yeah, you know those widgets you're building? They are, they are rust and, and, and moth that will decay. But the hearts of your children, your grandchildren, your neighbors may live, will live for eternity in one place or another. So recognize that, that your work is the work of God. Work is a gift of God. It's not a punishment for sin. And that's what we think of. But it was first, it was given. It was a pre-sin, pre-fall commandment. Before the fall of humanity, you and I had duties to perform or man had duties and women had duties to perform. So our work is not only for the glory of God, but it's for the service and the betterment of those that it will affect and touch. Let me ask you, if you were to recognize that the work that you do, and you say, but I don't really work face-to-face -face with the customer. I'm not giving them something of value, but you give value to those that you work with, that you work for. The value that you put into it puts in others. I was telling Dustin of a scenario that my father told me. He worked at Chrysler for years, and it was filled by his own admission of Garfield's. But they not only hated um, Mondays, but they hated Fridays. They were always looking to get off on Friday. And my dad gave me this warning, never ever buy a car that was built on Monday or Friday. Find out what day the car was built. He says on Fridays, the guys are so ready to get off work that they're just barely doing the work. On Mondays, most of them were, hang up, were hung over and they just weren't putting any work. He says it was not uncommon to find one man who would be so frustrated or angry that he would take screws or an old pop can. Or that's a soda, by the way for you for all out here. It, it, pop is something that we drink in, in Illinois. He says it was not uncommon to find a man so angry, so frustrated at work that they would throw those loose screws or a pop can into a trunk or into the molding of a car. So once it got in, that rattle you hear, it's the anger and frustration of someone who just said, that's it. Seriously. He says, don't buy a car that was built on Monday and built on Friday. So they're, What's a person doing? He's not thinking of the end. He's building, he's just sitting there building cars. What a terrible, long work that was. And my dad just, it was difficult for him, but he, he, he wanted to provide for us. He loved us. But we need to see the end value was that someone that we may not know will get that. How would that change the way that affects your work? Even if you were just a gardener or a janitor, or you're just flipping burgers, Everything you do should be touched with love. Recognizing that whether or not you'll ever see the end customer, that you're giving them something of value. You and I need to understand how we should approach our work more with that understanding. Number two. So not only was work created and ordained by God, but work was cursed as a result of man's rebellion against God. Now, let me say, now, work is not a curse, but our produce and our effort in work was cursed. 
And since then, you and I have that love or hate relationship with work. We ask ourselves, why is work so hard? Why is it so difficult? One author notes that after Adam's fall, it remained good for man to work. He was still to be fruitful and multiply. It was given to Noah. It was given to you and I. But due to God's curse on the earth, because of human sin, it became necessary for man not merely to work, but then to work hard. He would now fight to produce that which God blessed. Turn to uh, Genesis chapter 3, if you would, please. I want you to see that. And again, we need to understand what God is cursing here. God is not cursing our occupation, our job, or labor. But in Genesis chapter 3, look at verse 17. And Adam said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and this is here, this is after the sin, Eve had succumbed to the deceptions of, of the serpent. Adam listened to the voice of his wife and did not work and keep. He failed to protect the garden. He did not cultivate the heart of his wife. They fell into sin. Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. So work was not cursed. It is not the result of a curse, but where you and I will cultivate, where you and I will till, will be cursed. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your lives, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. It will fight back against us, and you shall eat the plants of the field. You will be able to, re, uh, to prosper from what you get, but by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread to return to the ground, for out of it you were taken for your dust, and dust you shall return. And there now there's that mindset that Solomon that was writing of. It's unappealing. It's unsatisfying. I struggle with it. So you and I in our work are still to serve God and to serve others. But now it's not going to be as blessed as it was before. It's going to be difficult. Sin has raised its ugly head. And now we'll deal not with just sinful systematic type things that deal with work. But even with those that we work with. The heart, the attitude, the minds of those that we serve. That we serve alongside. And those to whom our service is guided towards. From that moment on, our labor in serving God and serving others have become more difficult. When you encounter selfishness, greed, anger, frustration, emptiness, and other negativity at work, and you do, do you not? And that's what, you know, we have the saying, if it wasn't for people, my job would be great, right? So when you receive that, when you experience that, when you come against that, do not respond as the world does recognize that all of these barriers to joy that prevent us from enjoying work as we would like are actually the result of sin and it should you and lead it should lead you and I to pray more fervently for God's protection and help in our jobs not lead us to despair not lead us to frustration not to pull the apron off and throw it down and say take this job and shove it that's not what God has called us to, but to remember that we are in sinful world and you and I are to stand against that. Our work is an opportunity to be salt and light. These difficulties actually serve as opportunities to glorify God and to serve others joyfully. So when you get that phone call and a customer is angry 
be easy to respond as the world does, but a loving word, a kind word, does so much, does it not? And even if they leave up hanging up and angry, it's your response that God will honor. When we come and maybe you're doing whatever type of job you might be doing and it's difficult, whether it's your boss, whether it's those that are under you, whether it's those you're serving, remember that God will honor the man who honors God and lovingly serves. The Bible says you, you love others. Well, so what? So the world loves those who love them. Love those that are unloving. Love those that are unkind. Belong suffering. That's the work that God has called us to do. So instead of leading us to despair or anger or reluctance to do our work well, Christians should approach our jobs hard, giving more of an honest day's work for a day's pay. Looking and recognizing that we have a different master, a different boss, a different customer. You and I serve a customer and an audience of one. Christ and we must recognize that the problem is you and I do not see people in the image of God many times we see them as impediments to my happiness they're, they're people who are frustrating me they're people who are making me angry or it could have been your kind word or loving response that could be a seed or the watering of their own soul. For how could you ever share Christ ever responding to someone in anger and frustration, whether it's a customer or a coworker? How could you ever do that? I will share with you to my own shame that I know that when I stand before the throne room of God and he says, well done, thou good and faithful servant, and enter in the kingdom of the joy of your father. There'll be those that I worked with who will not hear those words and will be able to look at me and accusingly say, why should he go? Because I wasn't a good witness. I wasn't a testimony for God for many parts of their lives. And to be honest, there's not much I can do about that today other than confess and repent and turn and say nevermore. You and I need to be the image of God to those that we serve and work with. We're called to please God in our work. And we can do this in three ways. You'll see it here in the monitor. And I'm going to go through these a little bit more quickly. Is you and I should respect those that are over us. Those that are over us are God-ordained authorities. And the Bible tells us to respect our authorities. And so we must do so. We also can please God in our work by helping lead those who are under us. We must recognize that they're not there for our own advancement. They're not there to make us look good. They're not there just to make us feel better. But we are to serve them lovingly, kind, cultivating their heart, helping them in their life. I can't tell you how many times when I was in a secular world and I worked in... Um, a printing, I would copy. People would come to me and ask for copies and print jobs. And that was my job. And when they found out that I was, a, at that time, a, 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 a lay person who was a pastor and that I was doing that uh, part-time, I can't tell you how many times that they would drop off and say, hey, could you print this for me? And by the way, would you say a prayer for me real quick? 
So I'd say a prayer for them real quick. Or they'd come and ask the question, could I do this or should I do this? So help those that are under us. But also, number three, love others in our daily interactions. This will go so far and so much. You do not know where you are in the life of somebody that might be hurting or discouraged or struggling with life. You may be that one thing that leads them to despair or the thing that may lead them to God. You do not know where you stand. So stand as one who is salt and light. Even if you're just having them fill out a form. Even if they're struggling and saying, well, I don't want to do this. Remember that you are God's chosen person. That interaction for them that day. See every moment as a God moment. Let me give you an example of one who did so. A biblical example if I would. Oh my goodness, do not say it is so. Ah, my goodness. I don't have two weeks to finish this message. Stay with me. Buckle in. Everybody ready? Rob is going to go to speed. Give me a biblical example of one who approached their labor as one who seeks to glorify God and serve others in love. This man understood the need for hard labor. He understood the difficulty involved with labor. This man understood that his labor was important to accomplish God's plan. He knew what it was like to be maligned by others for just doing his job. He understood the futility of helping others only to have them slander him by those who served him. There were times he felt lonely and rejected because of his job. He even felt like quitting and he asked his boss if there was a different way that he had accomplished this task. This worker was Jesus. One biblical teacher wrote that Jesus was the perfect worker. He perfectly carried out the work of God that God gave him to do, including the accomplishment of our salvation on the cross. His work was to live a righteous life and to die a sinner's death. His work was to go to the cross where he took the penalty that our sin deserved so that you and I could be made right with God. And in the death and resurrection of Jesus, a work, a transaction took place. He came to deal with the wages of our sin and the massive debt against God that we could never repay. He came to deal with a flawless credit score, a life of pure obedience and perfect relationship with the king. And a great trade was made. God treated Jesus as you and I deserved and so that all who believed in him would be treated as he deserved. He made the ultimate sacrifice of his life so that he could know the ultimate grace of being forgiven of our sins and brought into a right relationship with God. You and I stand here because of the work of Jesus Christ, both passive and active. He goes on to state that our work should, be, should not be different or should be different because of Jesus' work. For as Christians, you and I work for a new master. We have a new assignment. We have new hearts and we have a new confidence and we have new rewards. You and I are called to work differently in the world. Now I did have something I wanted to share, a warning, but you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to write those down and then I'm going to put them as a blog because we're not going to get through that. The scripture commands us to serve God and serve others through our labor and work. Let me tell you, it will be difficult. 
Sin has corrupted everything that you and I touch and are involved in. It is everything and cursed everything else. But through that curse, you and I can be salt and light as God has called us to be. And this brings us to the main verse. We're finally getting to the main point. Take a look with me at 1 Corinthians 15, 58. It's here on the monitor if you have your Bible. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. He says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is what? Your life, your labor will not be like Solomon's. It will not be as, as those who see their life's work just pouring out and accomplishing nothing. Now, in this context, okay, because we want to take it in context, this verse is actually speaking about laboring in covenant community with each other and building up the local church. Throughout this letter in Corinthians, the church of Corinth, he has been instructing them of the importance of God's bride, the church. He is informing them that they are laborers together for Christ, building his church up. This church has been given a mandate, and that mandate is to make disciples. Go into the next passage on the monitor, Matthew chapter 28. Jesus said, go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to serve all that I command you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So he's saying labor in that as a church. But that word go in our translation actually means in your going or meaning that we are to make disciples as you and I go along our way. It's not talking about missionaries who must leave their homes and go to a different uh, country. He's speaking as, as you're going, as you go to the market, as you go to work, as you go into your community and your neighborhoods, make disciples. This is our responsibility not to make disciples only in our neighborhood community or our family and our friends, but also through our labors, through our vocation and occupation. Paul reminds us that you and I are the aroma of Christ of, to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, we are a fragrance from death to death, but to others, we are a fragrance of life to life that some may come and know Christ. You and I must understand that. So that means that in every facet of our lives, too many times that you and I, we're guilty of, and I'm going to see if I can say this word, compartmentalizing our lives. Of, so you can clap. Of separating our Christian activities from our, secular, from our secular ones. We tend to do that. Well, this is church work, and this is, this is my work work, and this is my, this is my fun and entertainment life. But our vocation is one of the biggest parts of our lives where we spend our time and energy. We must not neglect the field of harvest that God has planted us in. It is with this understanding that I share that the promise of God that's found in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. If we can go forward, Jake, I believe I have it one more time on the monitor. Look at it again. So with that in mind, he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, Always, always, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And what's the work of the Lord? Everything that you and I do. Whether it's here singing and praying, whether it's listening to the gospel, whether it's cultivating the hearts of our wives or children, or whether you and I are in knee deep with, our, with, with, our, with everything that we have in our jobs is the work of the Lord. Why? Knowing this, 
that our labor is not in vain. Dr. John MacArthur writes that that therefore is coming after Jesus is speaking about the resurrection. That as Christians, you and I, and I, you and I have hope that we will have eternal life. He says the hope of the resur resurrection makes all the efforts and sacrifices in the Lord's work that you and I do worth it. No work done in his name is wasted in light of eternal glory and reward. So are you saying, Pastor Rob, that making widgets, selling widgets, and listening to people who love and build widgets is God's work? Yes. And it is eternal work as we keep and protect, as we cultivate those we work with, those that we serve even our daily grind at work is redeemable by the work of Christ as we labor to glorify God and serve our neighbors in love. Let me give you a quick preview of our new city catechism for next week. It's our last one. It says, what hope does everlasting life hold on to? Well, it reminds us that this present fallen world is not all there is. Remember that. Your 40 to 50 hour day or work week is not all there is. Soon we will live with and enjoy God forever in his new city, in the new heavens and new earth, where we will be fully, fully and forever freed from all sin. Wouldn't they be a wonderful day? And we will inhabit renewed, resurrected bodies in a renewed and restored creation. Your motivation for work is not your identity that's found in work. It's not that paycheck that provides for your family. And it's not even just the time that you spend doing it. It's in the fact that you may bring someone into the new heavens and the new earth with you. Let's see that our, let us see that our work, our vocation, and all of our labor is directed to that wonderful day when God invites us and joins with us. May others receive the good news of Jesus by our dedication to whistle while we work, to work joyfully as we serve God and serve each other no matter what we're doing in our work or vocation. For that's what glorifies God. Everybody head bowed and everybody closed as the worship team comes up. I just want to encourage you to see your work in the way that God sees it. Not as a curse, not as a drudgery, not as a chore, but God ordained moments to serve and glorify him and to serve our customers, our employees, our, our employers with love. I pray that when you go into work Tuesday or whether it's maybe later today for some of you, maybe it's even tomorrow, that you'd whistle while you work, recognizing that you're doing God's work of making disciples one person at a time as you're the aroma, the fragrance of God. Father, you are so good. And we thank you for this challenge. Let us see our work, our vocation in a new light today. If there's any here that are struggling, and Father, they may be struggling for very good reasons. They are working for a boss that is, that is demanding, uh, one who is unreasonable. They may be working with employees that are, that, are, that are dishonest and liars and cheats. They're stealing from the company. Father, they may be even uh, serving people that are just the, the dredge of society, but it doesn't matter for all work is your work. And let us be content with what you've brought us to. 
Father, may we do it for your glory and for their good. Lord, that others may join with us in the new kingdom. Thank you for the opportunity to serve you in such a way. Enlighten our hearts and our minds and let us whistle while we work, Father. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.